Let me invite you now to turn again to that passage that we read a few moments ago. And we'll look once more at Isaiah chapter 53. Those marvelous verses that describe to us the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and the reason why he died and the glory that he deserves for having loved us so well. Isaiah 53 And if you're using a pew Bible, again, you'll find it on page 737. And let me just read again those words about Christ from verses 4 through 10. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearer, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Father, even this morning we are in his hand in the hand of the Lord Jesus and of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that your good pleasure would prosper among us. Stir our hearts today. Open our minds today. Move us to faith or greater faith, to love and greater love for your Son, Jesus, and for you who sent him for us. Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage, depicting as it does the events of that first Good Friday and that first Easter weekend, has long captured my attention. When I was a little boy, my parents and my Sunday school teachers had me memorize portions of Scripture. And as a college student, our campus minister had me to do the same thing, and I'm so thankful that they did. Such training proves to be a lifelong blessing for any child or young person. But I think that these words from Isaiah may have been the first verses from the Bible that I actually chose to memorize without anyone telling me to do so, just because I wanted to. I remember working on these verses during my junior year of college, committing them to memory simply because they were valuable to me, because I was captivated by their beauty and by their theology and by the Christ that they portray to us. And this passage has been a treasure to me ever since then. And not just to me, 
But Isaiah's marvelous words have, for many centuries, been treasured by millions of Christian people, haven't they? And I just want to point out to you three reasons this morning why this passage in Isaiah is so well loved by Christians all over the world. Why is it that we turn to this passage again and again and again? Why are we turning to it this morning even? Well, one of the reasons why this passage is so loved and so often turned to on the most surface level is simply because of its poetry. It's poetry. This passage about God's servant, this passage depicting the sufferings of Jesus and the reason for those sufferings is magnificently written. If you had a chance like I did this morning to simply pick a passage of scripture to be read aloud to a group of people explaining to them what Jesus did and why he did it. If you had two minutes to simply read the Bible aloud at work so that people might be captivated by the person and the work of Christ, I would think that many of you might actually find Isaiah 53 very near the top of your list of potential places to turn. Not only because it says so much about Jesus' death and says it so clearly, but it also does so majestically, powerfully, beautifully. Just listen again to verses 4 through 6 and see if you don't pick up the cadence which comes through even in our English translations. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It's amazingly written. Wordsworth and Shakespeare would be jealous of the beauty of Isaiah's verse here. And we see it not only in the cadence of Isaiah's words, but also in the, in the imagery. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. I wish I could illustrate my sermons with such fitting word pictures. And not only are we like sheep, Isaiah says, but so, he says, is Jesus, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearer, so he did not open his mouth. Now that's true, isn't it? When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate facing all sorts of false accusations, he didn't argue his case at all. He just stood silent because he didn't want to get out of this death sentence. He wanted to die for our sins. But isn't it marvelous how Isaiah portrays it in picture, like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep, that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. When I was in Ethiopia a few years ago, several people were coming over to Anthony's house for dinner, and so we were going to have a sheep roast. And the sheep was not going to be bought at Kroger, it was going to be bought live at the market. And I didn't really want to be a part of that process of getting the sheep from living to being ready for the roasting. And so I went inside to read while others were outside taking care of things. And I read, and it was quiet. And after a while, I went outside just to see what was going on and found that Anthony and another friend were actually sitting right beneath my window, already making little cube pieces of mutton and putting them in a bucket. The sheep had already been slaughtered right outside my bedroom window, and I never knew it happened because that's what sheep do. They lay down their lives 
without putting up any fuss at all. And Isaiah captures that. And so, so it was with Jesus. It's a masterful portrait he's painted for us, a masterly piece of writing he's given to us. But as I say, the beauty of Isaiah's poetry is, is just the surface thing that attracts us to this passage. It's like the beauty of, of a woman's complexion, but when there's even greater beauty found inside. And that's how this passage is. Because if we get, of the, get to the heart of what Isaiah is actually saying, if we begin to grasp Isaiah's theology, then we'll be even more enamored with this passage. And so that's the second and far more important reason why this passage is so well loved and why I've chosen it this morning. Not only for its poetry, but far more important for its theology. For what it says to us about God. We saw just a bit of that theology in the picture of Jesus as the lamb, silent before his accusers, because he wanted to die. That picture of Jesus laying down his life as a sheep teaches us a great deal about his humility, that he's willing to be falsely accused without retaliating. It also teaches us about his love, because the reason he did it, the reason he put up with the false accusations, the reason why he allowed himself to be condemned, the reason why he willingly laid down his life and didn't argue back was because it was the only way that we could be saved. And he loved us enough to do it. And so I tell you, there's not only a great deal of poetry in this chapter, but profound theology. And the theological truth that comes through most of all in Isaiah 53 can be summed up in one word. Substitution. That's the theology of this chapter. Substitution. If you ask the question, okay, why did Jesus lay down his life? Why was he pierced through? Why was he crushed? Why was he crucified? Why did he suffer so badly? Why was he led like a lamb to slaughter? At the very core of the answer to that question is the word substitution. Jesus did all those things. Jesus died. Jesus went to the cross as a substitute. He died in the place of someone else. Like the lambs of the Old Testament sacrifices. He stood in the place of sinners and died the death that sinners deserved. Isaiah says this over and over again, does he not? Listen again to verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Did you hear it? Jesus died not for his own sins, for he didn't have any of his own sins. He died rather for our sins as a substitute. We deserve to die because of our breaking of God's laws, and Jesus died in our place. And we all break God's laws every day, don't we? It's just what Isaiah says in verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. All of us break God's laws every day. None of us loves the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind. And none of us loves our neighbor as ourselves, truly. 
And Jesus actually said these are the two most important of God's commandments. It's not just about stealing or murdering or cursing or sexual immorality. The two most important things that we must do is love God with everything that we have and love our neighbors exactly as we love ourselves. And if you think about that for just even a moment, you'll say, hmm, I have gone astray. I have turned to my own way. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll find that the Ten Commandments can be summarized by these two things that I've just said to you. The Ten Commandments can be summarized by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Go home today and read the Ten Commandments and you'll see that every one of them fits under one of those two categories. Love God with everything that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. And again, if we all think about that in real honesty, I think you will agree with me and with the Bible that none of us is without sin. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Think about it honestly, and you'll agree with me that we all sin every single day. And sin, the Bible says, deserves death. The wages of sin is death. The payday for our sins is death. And not just physical death, eternal death in the lake of fire, the Bible says. Someone would say, really? God requires the death penalty because I told a lie? God requires the death penalty because I stole something when I was little? Because I slept with my girlfriend? Yes. Well, doesn't that seem a little bit harsh? Well, when looked at from a human perspective, perhaps... But when we consider against whom we are actually sinning, it's a whole different story. Because it's not your neighbor who made up the command that you shouldn't lie, is it? And it's not the shopkeeper who came up with the laws about stealing. And it's not your parents who made the rules about sexual morality. Your sins in these areas, and mine as well, do affect these people, but it's far deeper than just a horizontal sin against other people. Because the laws that you and I break when we sin against other people were put in place by Almighty God. He's the one who said not to steal. He's the one who said not to commit adultery. He's the one who said not to lie, and so on. And so when we break these laws, we're not just taking advantage of other people. We're thumbing our noses at the very one who made us. Saying, I don't like what you said. The one who made everything we see. The one who gives us the very air we breathe. I don't want to live the way you've taught me to live. And that's a serious offense. Offense To flout the authority of the maker of heaven and earth. It's one thing if you put in a phone call and threaten to burn down your neighbor's house. There might be repercussions for that, right? But if you send an email to Washington, D.C., threatening to burn down the White House or the Capitol building, well, now you're in a whole lot more hot water, aren't you? Because now you're attacking the very authority of the land. And how much more serious and how much more hot the flames when we flout the authority of the very highest one that there is. Sin is far more serious than we think. Far more serious than we think. Every single instance of it is punishable by death because it's a shaking of our fist in the face of God. And yet, we didn't come here today just to hear about death. 
right? Isn't the message of the Bible that God so loved the world? Isn't the message of the Bible that God wants to save sinners and give us eternal life? Well, it is, isn't it? But if our sins deserve eternal death, then there's a dilemma, isn't there? We can't just paste over that, put some plaster over the hole in the wall and pretend like everything's okay this morning. God can't simply sweep our sins under the rug any more than a judge in our city can let a criminal go free from the courthouse downtown tomorrow morning. Sin must be punished. Crime must be judged. And so how can the God of the Bible, the God who is just and who must punish sin, how can he let us go free given the judgment that our sins rightly deserve? Well, that's what Isaiah is trying to explain to us. How can God justly punish our sin, the wages of which is death, and yet at the same time show his love for us by forgiving our sins and granting us eternal life? Well, the answer is substitution. God can let us go free if someone else stands in as our substitute and takes our death sentence for us. That's what verses 5 and 6 are about. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He's our substitute. Look also at the second half of verse 8. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The stroke was due to us. But Jesus stood in our place and was cut off out of the land of the living for us. The hymn writer Ann Cousin put it like this, Jehovah lifted up his rod, O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. There's not one stroke of God's rod left for me. Because Jesus stood in as my substitute, because he went to my cross and absorbed my death penalty and the strokes that should come down on my back, well then if I belong to Jesus, if I'm trusting him, there's not one stroke left for me. Someone might question the words of Mrs. Cousin, the hymn writer, and say, Jehovah lifted up his rod? Jehovah being the name of, for God. Is she saying that God lifted up his rod and caused it to fall on Jesus? I thought Jesus was God's son. Why would God crucify his only son? And besides, I thought that the Romans killed Jesus at the behest of the Jewish religious leaders and the angry crowds and with the help of Judas Iscariot. I thought they were the ones that were responsible for Jesus' death. And, and ultimately, aren't we the ones who put Jesus on the cross? After all, it was our sin that he died for. That's what Isaiah says. So yes, there are lots of people to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus, us among them. So why would the hymn writer pin it on God? Why would she say that Jehovah lifted up his rod and caused it to fall on Jesus? Well, because that's what Isaiah says here in chapter 53, isn't it? Listen carefully one more time to verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So yes, the cross is somehow our doing. But 
ultimately the responsibility lies with the Lord. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Lord decided to send Jesus to the cross, bearing our sins in his body. Or even more pointedly, verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him. When Jesus died, it was because his father was actively pouring out on his son the justice and the wrath and the death blows that we deserve because of our sin. And that is why the hymn writer says, Jehovah lifted up his rod and caused it to fall on Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter says this was always God's plan. To send the Lord of glory, the Prince of life, to die in our place. This was ordained, Peter says, by the foreknowledge of God. We find the same truth all throughout the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5. He, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin on our behalf. He made him to be sin. Romans 8.32. He did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for us all. But the clearest of all is here in Isaiah 53.10. The Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to pour out his judgment on him. The Lord was pleased to make him drink the cup of his wrath all the way to its dregs. The Lord was pleased to place on his head all the sins of all God's people for all time. What a crushing blow was laid on the son's back that day. J.I. Packer points out that this is why Jesus sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Why was he so upset? Because he was carrying before the Lord all the sins of all God's people for all time. Because it was God's judgment that he was about to face. Packer ruminates on this at some length in chapter 18 of his classic book, Knowing God. And that chapter is reprinted in another book by him and Mark Dever called In My Place Condemned He Stood. Knowing God, in my place condemned He Stood. Both of those would be well worth your perusal. And in both of those books, Packer considers this question. Why did Jesus tremble so much at the thought of his death? Why was his soul so troubled that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground? Packer says, quote, How should we explain the fact that whereas martyrs like Stephen faced death with joy, and even Socrates, the pagan philosopher, drank his hemlock and died without a tremor, Jesus, the perfect servant of God, who had never before showed the least fear of man or pain or loss, manifested in Gethsemane what looked like blue funk. Never man feared death like this man, commented Luther. Why? What did it mean? End of quote. Why was Jesus so afraid? Why was he even more afraid than many other people have been who have faced torturous death? Well, Packer goes on to explain that it was for the very reason that we've just been observing in Isaiah 53. Because he knew that the Lord was pleased to crush him. Jesus wasn't afraid of death because he was afraid of what Pilate might do to him. He didn't sweat drops of blood because he was afraid of what was happening with the soldiers or the nails or the lash or the rod beating across his head. He wasn't afraid of what the crowds might do or even what you and I are doing to him because of sin. He was fearful in the garden. He was troubled in the garden because he knew that the Lord was pleased to crush him. 
Jesus knew that it was the Lord's fury he must endure, and that's a whole different thing. Yes, it was our sin that necessitated that fury, but it was the Lord's wrath poured out upon him for it. And the thought of it troubled him greatly. And yet he went through with it. Jesus willingly, lovingly went through with it. He endured the cross. He endured the agony. He endured the wrath of Almighty God. He endured the abandonment. And he did it all alone in our place. And I say to you, how much must he love us to do all of that for me? And for you. But what about the Father? Isn't this an astounding statement in verse 10, especially when we highlight the word pleased? The Lord was pleased to crush him? Really? How can that be? How can God be pleased to crush his own son? What kind of a father could possibly be pleased to see his son undone like this? Much less pleased to have himself be the one doing the undoing? It's a difficult question. One that's caused some people to reject out of hand what I've been preaching and what Isaiah and the Holy Spirit behind him plainly says in chapter 53. Some people say, well, it can't be that the Lord did this. This, That's just one theory, but that can't be the right theory, that Jesus was a substitute bearing God's wrath and that God was actually the one who sent him to the cross and that God was the one ultimately dealing the blows. That can't be so. Just doesn't sound like what a father would do. But we can't go down that road because it's right here in black and white, isn't it? The Lord was pleased to crush him. How can that be? Well, the answer, once again, is love. How much must the Heavenly Father love us if he was willing to put his only begotten Son to such grief in order to save us? How much must he love us if he willingly sent his son to the cross, as Philip Bliss wrote, bearing shame and scoffing rude? How much does God long to save sinners if he would actually be pleased to crush his son in order to make it happen? If he would put him in our place? Sinclair Ferguson has said we would almost think that God loved us more than he loves his son. Now, that cannot be, of course. God loves no one more than he loves his only begotten son. But the cross is such a profound show of the Father's commitment to save us, of his love for us, of his willing to sacrifice for us, that it is difficult for us to imagine him loving anyone more than the sinners for whom that sacrifice was made. And I have to ask you, in light of this great love, in light of the love of Christ who endured the wrath of God on behalf of sinners, who died in agony on the cross, gasping for every breath, forsaken and alone, and yet going through with it to save us, and in light of the love of the Father who was willing and even pleased to give up His Son in the place of His people, in the light of that great love of the Father and of the Son, can you do anything but love him in return and live your life to his praise and in light of the great sin debt that I've described to you which hangs over your head and mine 
Can you do anything but flee to this Jesus who is your only hope of forgiveness? He's it. The wages of sin is death. Either you die or he dies in your place. His death as our substitute, absorbing our punishment, absorbing the wrath that we deserve, is our only hope of mercy at the bar of God's unimpeachable justice. And if it is, can we do anything but run to this Jesus to receive the forgiveness that he offers to all who come to him in faith? I hope you will run to this Jesus if you've never done before. Indeed, the New Testament makes it clear that it's only those who run to Jesus. It's only those who come to him in faith who receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life and right fellowship with God. Not everyone is forgiven of sins. Not everyone is saved by Jesus' death. Only those who repent of their sin and who trust in what Jesus has done as their only hope of forgiveness, as the only way that they can be acquitted at the bar of God's justice. If you try and argue your way into heaven, if you try to convince God that your sins weren't really as bad as the Bible says they are, or if you think that your good deeds will somehow outweigh your bad, and that's why God should let you in, you'll be left to pay for your sins yourself. But if you will trust what Christ has done as your substitute, then your sins will be forgiven and your soul will be saved. And I urge you to do that even today. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So that's the second thing this morning, the theology of Isaiah 53. That the God of heaven sent his son to die the death of the cross and was pleased to do so so that this Jesus might die as our substitute, might stand in the place of poor sinners so that his death would make payment for our sins. And that is why I and so many others love this great passage. For its poetry, yes, but especially for the theology that that poetry contains. But then let me mention one more reason why Christians have so long treasured Isaiah 53, not only for its poetry and its theology, but also for its prophecy. It's prophecy. You may have noticed that the book of Isaiah is part of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is that part of the Bible that describes God's works and God's dealings with his people before the coming of Jesus. Before his conception in the virgin's womb. Before his birth in Bethlehem. Before his miracles and his teachings and his healings and his befriending of sinners. And of course, before his death on the cross. Isaiah was written before Jesus ever became flesh and dwelt among us. Roughly 700 years before, in fact. And that fact should add a whole other level of intrigue to what we are reading this morning. Because if you didn't know that it was Isaiah who wrote this magnificent description of Christ and his death and his suffering, or if you knew that Isaiah wrote it but you had no idea when Isaiah lived... You might almost think that this chapter had been written by someone who was standing right there at the foot of the cross watching it all happen. Or at least who was reflecting on it at a later date having seen it. Because the things Isaiah says about the Lord Jesus are so accurate, aren't they? He doesn't just tell us that the Messiah is going to come and die. He tells us the precise manner in which he's going to come and die. Pierced through 
for our transgressions, tortured by means of scourging at the end of verse 5. This is exactly what the Roman soldiers did to Jesus, isn't it? They scourged him. They pierced through his hands and his feet and his side. And we already noted how Isaiah describes the Messiah's silence in verse 7 in the face of his accusers. And that, how that corresponds exactly with what happened when Jesus stood before the Roman governor, Pilate, accused of all these things and electing not to answer the false charges that were being made against him. Isaiah says it exactly like it happened. And then in verse 9, Isaiah tells of how this servant of the Lord pierced through, oppressed, and afflicted and finally cut off out of the land of the living would be with a rich man in his death. Which is exactly what happened. Even though Jesus himself seems to have possessed hardly anything when he died, he was buried in a very prominent tomb. He was buried in the tomb of a prominent man called Joseph of Arimathea in the tomb that Joseph had set aside for himself. And so just as Isaiah said, Jesus was with a rich man in his death. And I say to you that these descriptions of the scene surrounding Jesus' death are so accurate that we might almost think that Isaiah had been there himself as an eyewitness to tell us what happened. And yet Isaiah lived in the 700s B.C., And he wrote his prophecy at that time, seven centuries before it actually happened. And I say to you that if you have been unsure up until this point as to whether you should believe all that I've been telling you about sin and about Jesus and about substitution, if you've not been sure whether you can really believe what I've been saying to you from this book, perhaps this will put you over the edge If Isaiah, seven centuries before the fact, can so strikingly predict the manner of Jesus' death and his silence before his accusers and even the circumstances of his burial, if Isaiah can prophesy all of that 700 years before the fact, then that tells me that what we read in this book is not merely the thoughts and ruminations of a collection of mere men. There is a divine quality about the Bible that is unmistakable. And that necessitates that we take its word seriously. God wrote this book. That is the only way Isaiah could have spoken like he did centuries before Christ ever came into the world. And if God wrote this book, then we must take it seriously. We must believe what it says about God. That he made us. That he loves us. That he deserves our highest love and obedience. And we must believe what this book says about us. Namely that... All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That none of us loves or obeys God as we should. That we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and therefore deserve his judgment. And we must believe what this book says about Christ. That he is the son of God. That he is in fact God come down in the flesh. That he did become human, taking on our flesh and dwelling among us and tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And we must believe about him that because he is without sin, he was able to stand in as our substitute at the bar of God's justice. No sins of his own that he had to pay for, he can stand in for ours. And we must believe that both Jesus and his father loved us enough to go through with this plan whereby Jesus would absorb in his own body the death penalty that our sins deserve. 
And we must believe that whoever believes in him will be acquitted, will be forgiven of all sin, will be made right with God, will be adopted into his family, and shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we must believe, because the Bible says it, that on the third day, on that first Easter Sunday morning, this Jesus rose from the dead, alive forevermore. In fact, did you notice that Isaiah prophesied that too? Did you notice the resurrection of Jesus in Isaiah 53? Listen again to verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now you tell me, after a man has been stricken, pierced through, crushed, scourged, and finally cut off out of the land of the living, after all that has happened to a man, Culminating in his death, how is he going to see his offspring? Verse 10. How is he going to prolong his days? How is the good pleasure of the Lord going to prosper in his hand? How is that possible if he's been cut off out of the land of the living? It's only possible if God somehow raises him from the dead. And by telling us that this dead Messiah will prolong his days, that is exactly what Isaiah is prophesying here. Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And here's another thing that necessitates our taking seriously the good news about Jesus. If Jesus had come onto the scene and taught amazing things and loved people magnificently and performed miracles, all of which he did, and then if he had been martyred at the end of it all, that would be a great moving story, would it not? They would put it on the screen and people would be impressed. But it wouldn't necessitate that we drop everything and dedicate our entire lives to a dead historical figure, right? Because wonderful as the man was, he was only a man. And now he lays in the dust right alongside all the other human beings, good and bad, who have come and gone from the face of the earth. But if someone should come along and teach and heal and love and do miracles... And, and live like no man ever lived. And then if that person should die claiming that he's not simply a martyr, but that he is a substitute for sinners. And then if that man should three days later walk out of the grave and be seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, well, then we can't any longer just lump him in with all the other great leaders and gurus and teachers and sages. Not if he rose from the dead. And so I urge you, if you've never seriously considered Jesus before, or if you're just beginning to, or if you've been skeptical about Christianity, or if maybe you've begun to doubt your faith, I urge you, the facts of the case presented by Isaiah 700 years in advance of a Savior who is actually risen from the dead, the facts of the case Don't allow us to remain neutral. You must give a hard look at Jesus and decide what you will do with him. And more than just looking and examining the facts and coming to a conclusion about Jesus, you must believe in him with all your heart. If there is a God, and the order and the design all around us in the natural world says that there is, 
And if we really have failed him and our consciences cry out that we have, and if this God loves us and sent his son to die for our sins so that we might have peace with him, and Isaiah clearly demonstrates that that's what God did, well then what else can we do but lay our lives down at the feet of Jesus and trust him with everything that we are? And so I urge you, This morning, do not let this Easter Sunday service be the end of your consideration of Jesus, but the beginning of a lifetime of faith. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And so, in the simple words of the New Testament, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved.